people have to the Christian faith. These may be objections that we hear when, if we are Christians, when we're talking with others about our faith in Christ, that they raise questions like, well, but how can we really know that the Bible's trustworthy? But how do we even know that God exists? What about all the other religions out there? Today we are examining another big objection that people raise to Christianity, and it's this. But doesn't science disprove the Bible? But doesn't science disprove the Bible? This is a very common objection. Even as I was preparing for the series and juggling in my mind, okay, which topics are we going to talk about in these six weeks? I was talking with, with someone else about this, and when I brought up this question of, well, what if we talk about science and the Bible? The person I was talking with even wondered, well, doesn't, it, doesn't science disprove the Bible anyway? I mean, they don't really go together very well, do they? Well, that's the topic we're looking at this morning. And many people, when they look at this topic, view, view things as if, okay, you're either very scientifically minded or you're very religious, or you could be something else. But you can't be both. You can't be both scientific and have faith in God at the same time. They're seen as mutually exclusive. You can't have one and the other at the same time. And so this is a very real question that we get from many different avenues in life. Sometimes it's from friends and family who just raise the question in an informal conversation. Sometimes it's in classes that we have in school where teachers or textbooks raise questions about if, if science is true, can you really believe in God? There are even a number of people in our world who are strong atheists, who, who don't believe at all in God, but the, and they try to convince others there's not a God as well. And one of the main ways to try to do that is to try to show that science disproves the Bible. Right now I'm reading a pretty interesting book. I, I don't recommend it, uh, but it's interesting anyway. It's called The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is one of these men who's a very outspoken atheist. He's, um, he's a scientist as well. He's a professor at Oxford. But this book is his attempt to try to convince people that there's no God um, and that, therefore, you shouldn't believe in him. But he makes some, some very strong statements about science and its relationship with the existence of God. And many times when people say that science disproves the Bible, they're, they're really talking specifically about the concept of evolution, saying that if evolution is true, then the Bible cannot be true. And he makes that statement here uh, in not so many words. I want to read you a couple quotes from this book that shows how many people see this disconnect between science and the Bible. He said in one place in this book, he said, Today the theory of evolution is about as much open to doubt as the theory that the earth goes around the sun. It is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to, be, or not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane. So you notice that he said, it's absolutely safe to say that if you don't believe in evolution, then there's something seriously wrong with you. But then he goes on to say, uh, the, the extrapolation from this, the conclusion that he draws... Um, is that if the science is true, which he's trying to point to here, he says, if this book works as I intend, this is right from this book in the preface, he says, if this w- book works as I intend, religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. It's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? That he's hoping that the weight of all the evidence that he points to in here, a majority of which is scientific evidence as, as well as just his own philosophical arguments, He's saying that under the weight of all that evidence, that he's hoping 
that by reading this book, people will abandon their faith in God. So that's just one voice in our culture today that is trying to say that, you know what, science disproves God. So this is a very real question that, that we do need to wrestle with. Does it? Does or does not science disprove God? Well, that's the question we're looking at this morning. So as we prepare ourselves to talk more about this, I invite you to pray uh, with me that God will be at work in our midst. Our Father, as we come to this topic this morning, we recognize that it can be a challenging topic. It's a topic that oftentimes raises a lot of emotions. There are a lot of opinions out there on the role of science in the realm of religion and faith. God, I pray that you'll give us clarity as we examine the world around us, as we examine scriptures. Give us clarity, Lord, on the relationship between science and faith in you. Be our teacher this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, uh, the point that I really want to try to help us understand is this. The Bible is true, and true science complements it. Now, this may sound really strange. You may think, okay, Pastor Brandon's just going completely off the deep end here. But this is the point I want to make. I fully believe that the Bible is true, and that true science complements everything that's in Scripture. We'll make this point as we go along. And I want to make specifically four different points that help, help point to a healthy perspective on the relationship between science and the Bible. And the first point I want to make is this. That the way that we relate science and the Bible makes a huge difference. You see, some people view science and the Bible being in conflict with each other. Like these two bears we see up on the screen, they're fighting against each other. Uh, you know, okay, if, if there's a fight, odds are good one is going to be victorious over the, over the other. In this debate over science and the Bible, oftentimes in this conflict model, it's seen that, okay, one is right, the other is wrong. And, and the two sides go at each other trying to prove that the other one is wrong. And this is a popular view today, especially in the media. But even in classrooms and in casual conversations, you'll hear this view expressed that there is significant conflict between the Bible and science. There's a second model, though, that, that I personally lean towards more, and it's the integration model. That really, science and the Bible, if they're both correctly understood in their, in their essence and in their truth, they complement each other, just going hand-in-hand, hand, helping us to interpret the other. For instance, well, actually, the reason I believe this goes back to, the, to my understanding that God created the world. Genesis 1.1 talks about how God created the heavens and the earth. And in Colossians chapter 1, we see that God continues to sustain the world, to keep it moving forward well, to keep it running well. And so if God's the creator of everything, if he's the sustainer of everything, then to me it makes sense that everything that we see in the world around us should ultimately point to his truth. It shouldn't contradict him. Because he's the one who created it and is sustaining it in the first place. So I believe that when we see science as it truly is, that we will see that it complements Scripture. This doesn't necessarily mean that everything that a scientist says is true. In fact, as we'll be seeing today, many of the things that scientists say today are not true. But true science will complement Scripture. Now, you may be thinking, okay, Pastor Brandon is still a little bit off his rocker. He's supposed to be a pastor. He's not supposed to be talking about science. That, that may be a mindset that, okay, you should keep the two separate. One shouldn't talk about the other. 
But the reality is that if all truth is God's truth, everything we find, in wherever we look for it, whether it's in Scripture or in nature or somewhere else, we'll see that if that is true, it's going to point us towards God. And also, I'm a person who does have a significant value for science. I think it might be helpful to share a little bit more about where my value for science has developed. And it really developed as I was growing up. Uh, my mom uh, is the person I attribute a lot of my value for science to uh, because she, she valued science a lot before I was born. She was a high school chemistry teacher for, several, for a year and then also taught middle school physical science for several years. And then she stopped teaching when I, uh, when I was born. But then when I got into elementary school, my mom went back to school to get her doctorate in science education. And then for the last 20 years, she's been a college professor teaching things like physical science and earth science. And she also teaches education classes, including teaching t- future teachers how to teach science. So she has a, a deep value, even a love, for science and for the world around us. And she also, for the last 19 years, has been teaching summer science camps for your children uh, to try to help them to understand that science really can be fun. It's not boring, it's fun. And so her love for science has begun to wear off on me through the years. And I didn't realize the full extent of this until not that many years ago. Uh, My mom, being a person who loves nature and science, likes to decorate her house with rocks. You see, a hand, or you see a couple pictures of them up on the screen right now. They're nice rocks. They're geodes and things like that. I always thought this was just kind of normal. Rocks are nice. You decorate your house with rocks. And then Shelly came when we were dating to visit my family's house. And she informed me. That, I mean, she thought the rocks were kind of nice, I think. But through our conversations, I quickly realized it's not really normal to decorate your house with rocks. That's fine, though. I mean, that's my mom, though. She loves God, but she also loves science, and she loves nature. And I think that really began to rub off on me through the years where I valued science a lot as well. I also have an aunt and uncle who are both biochemists, and so that rubbed off on me. And for me, when I got to college, my major for a while was chemistry. I interned for a summer in a chemical lab, and I eventually changed my major to engineering, uh, but that still has a lot of science in it. And so... I'm just a person who values science. As I said, I believe that science, when we truly understand the way that God has created the world, which is what the scientific endeavor should be, that we'll see that true science does complement Scripture. Well, now I want to move on um, to, to develop this point a little bit more that there is no real conflict between science and the Bible. Again, some people think there's a conflict there, But really, when we understand true science, I think we'll understand that there's not really a conflict with the Bible. There is a conflict out there, though, but it's not between science and the Bible. Instead, it's between this philosophy called naturalism and the Bible. Naturalism is a philosophy whose starting point is that there is no God. And since there is no God, we have to try to explain everything that happens by completely natural causes. As I said, this is a philosophy. It's not provable by science, but it's a philosophy that oftentimes undergirds a lot of the interpretations that scientists make when they're looking at various data and various evidence in the world. And, and as I said, they, they believe there's no God, there's nothing spiritual, there's nothing supernatural, there's no such thing as miracles. 
And so therefore, if there's no God, no miracles, nothing supernatural, we have to find a natural way to explain everything that happens. And this is where the theory of evolution popped up. Uh, the theory of evolution became very popular back in the mid-1800s through a book by Charles Darwin. Uh, Charles Darwin talked about uh, the theory of evolution through natural selection, through basically survival of the fittest. And Richard Dawkins, who I referred to earlier, who wrote The God Delusion, said that uh, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. An intellectually fulfilled atheist. Because before Darwin, there were still people who didn't want to believe in God. But they, did, they didn't really have a, a logical way to explain how everything got here the way it is today. But according to Dawkins, when Darwin came and proposed evolution, it gave a possible way for everything to get here without any sort of God intervening in the process. And so that allowed atheism to flourish more and more. And this atheism is the foundation of a naturalistic view of the world around us. But we need to understand that naturalism is not the same as science. You, you find a lot of scientists who, are who really value naturalism, but they're not the same. Naturalism is a philosophy. Science is a study of the things that are around us that is based on observations that we make and is based on repeatable experiments that can be done. But naturalism, as I said, is basically, it's a philosophy, and it's, it especially becomes a philosophy when this view that there's no God and this view that evolution is true becomes this all-encompassing theory that people use to try to explain everything. Now you may be wondering, okay, why, why are we talking about naturalism this morning? The reason is that naturalism influences the interpretations a lot of scientists have as they examine the world around us. Naturalism becomes basically this paradigm that, that people can use to interpret things around us. And when you think about paradigms, we all have a paradigm or kind of a filter that we use when we're, uh, when we're just living our lives. This, this paradigm shapes the way we interpret interactions that we have, interpret things that we see, things we experience. And our paradigm, we each have it, is built through our background, like uh, the influence of family and friends. It's, it's built through education that we have. It's built through various experiences we have. We all have a paradigm that we use to interpret what's going on in the world around us. And the thing is, for a lot of people who believe that science disproves the Bible, they're starting with this naturalistic philosophy as their paradigm and so basically, in that philosophy, there's no way that there can be a God. All the evidence they see, they're going to interpret in a way that rules God out of the picture. As I said, paradigms influence how we view things. Let me give you a few more examples of how this works. Kind of a, just a, a, a funny example, sort of. A couple of years ago, my wife Shelley and I were at the Fish Day Car Show up on the bluff. We'd just been visiting the craft fair, and we went over to the cars, which I was pretty excited about. And there were a number of nice cars there, nothing that caught my attention that much until we got to a 1970 Plymouth Superbird. Now, some of you may be looking at that car and thinking, why is that so special? It just looks like a basic car, has this ugly wing on the back. That was kind of my wife's reaction to that car. I was sitting there drooling over this car. She couldn't understand why is this car so exciting to you. I mean, it has peeling paint, uh, or it needs a new paint job. It has stickers that are peeling off of it. It's it's kind of ugly, has that ugly wing on the back. She was filtering that car 
through her paradigm that doesn't really value cars that much and, and likes cars and they have a nice paint job and doesn't like big, massive three-foot wings on the back. I was looking at the car through a different paradigm, though. Mine is more through a car guy paradigm. But I think the wing's kind of cool, and especially when you understand the racing history behind this car. It's a very rare car, only built for one year, 1970. Um, that wing is so tall, partly for aerodynamics, but also so the trunk can open underneath it. It's just kind of cool. It's a car I've really enjoyed learning more about through the years. That was my paradigm. I really valued it. I, I, I didn't want to leave that car. My wife didn't really understand that. She was coming at it from a different paradigm. But that shows we're both looking at the same car. We have different interpretations of what the car means to us. It's the difference in paradigms of how we're interpreting things. Let me give you a few more examples that relate more to the issue of naturalism and evolution. Many, many, especially evolutionists, point to the relationship between monkeys, especially chimpanzees, and humans saying, okay, there are a lot of parallels between them. And there's quite a bit of shared genetic information. There's some similar similarity in appearance. We both have opposable thumbs, which is kind of cool. Care for our young in similar ways. So from a naturalistic paradigm or a naturalistic perspective, when people see those similarities, they think, okay, there must be evolution. One evolved into the other. Well, I, I have a different paradigm that I look at it from. I, I, I believe that there's evidence that God created the world and he has the right to make animals or make creatures that are somewhat similar, that share some genetic material. That it's fine for other creatures to have opposable thumbs besides just humans. But again, you have different paradigms. They're interpreting the same data in different ways. Another example of this that I read in The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins is the issue of morality. How, according to Dawkins, when you look at, um, look at morality, a sense of right and wrong across cultures and across religions, there are a lot of similarities. Yeah, there are a few abnormalities, but a lot of similarities. And he tries to explain from that, there, this points, in his view, to the, to the conclusion that there is no God. Because evidently, God working through religions isn't making a difference in people's sense of right and wrong. You don't need a God to, to make sense of right and wrong in his mind. So he uses this, this similar sense of morality across cultures and religions to try to prove that there's no God. When I read that, I immediately wrote in the margins, what about the image of God? Because biblically speaking, back in Genesis, we see when God created humans, he created us in his image, which isn't talking so much about physical attributes as instead of characteristics such as uh, a sense of morality, kind of this moral compass that's built into us in terms of our conscience. And now every human being has a conscience. Some of us definitely listen to our conscience more than others, but everyone has that. But different paradigms interpret the same data differently. And one of the things we need to recognize is that there are many scientists out there who are interpreting the data and the evidence they see in the world through their naturalistic paradigm. In that paradigm, there's no room for God. So they're naturally going to rule God out of the picture and come up with a natural anti-God type of explanation for what they see. Now, you may be thinking, okay, whew, this is a lot of stuff today. Sunday morning, I like to relax a little bit, looking forward to the Packers game. Um, encourage you, we're not quite through this yet, but I want to encourage you, just take a breath. Take a nice deep breath. All right, what we're talking about this morning, as I said, 
is that the Bible is true and true science complements the Bible. We've already talked about how there's really a degree of integration there since God created the whole world and everything we see in the world should point to him if he's really the creator. How the real conflict is not between science and the Bible, but between this naturalistic philosophy and the Bible. Well, the third thing that I want to point to is that there is strong scientific evidence for God. Not that science contradicts God. Actually, there's a lot of evidence in science for God. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about um, the existence of God. If you'd like to hear more about the scientific evidence for God, I invite you to uh, go to our website uh, for the church, and you can listen to that sermon online uh, so you can hear more about the scientific evidence for God. But one of the things we talked about then were three main points that point to the existence of God. And two of those three were directly related to science. One was about the origin of the universe, how the universe definitely had a beginning. Scientists are unanimous about that. But how to explain that beginning is very challenging for naturalistic scientists. I found it striking in this God Delusion book. It's 400 pages long trying to prove that there is no God. But Richard Dawkins does not talk in this book about the origin of the universe. He doesn't talk about how things got here. And I find that over and over, when you have people who are trying to say that, that there isn't a God, they don't like to talk about the origin of the universe. Because science can't really explain that. It's really tough to, for science to explain how something came from nothing. So the origin of the universe is one scientific aspect that points to the existence of God. Also, we talked a couple weeks ago about how the design of the universe points to the existence of God, how it seems like this universe is very finely tuned to support human life. And so there is a lot of scientific evidence for the existence of God. And you may be thinking, okay, what about the Bible? Does the Bible say much about science? Well, I think we have to recognize that the Bible is not a scientific textbook. But there are places where the Bible does touch on science. There aren't a lot of places, but there are some. One example of this is in Romans 1.20, where Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So what, what Paul is saying here is that God is invisible. You can't see God. It's really tough to find an experiment to prove whether or not God is there, except that God has made himself known through creation. He's invisible, but what we see around us points to him as well. And now, one of the other topics that oftentimes comes up when we're talking about science in the Bible is Genesis 1 and 2. You may be wondering yourself, okay, well, what about the creation of the world? Doesn't the Bible talks about that? Doesn't that point to science? Well, it does, but at the same time, we have to recognize that Genesis 1 and 2 can be a bit challenging to interpret. Uh, let me point to a few of the challenges, uh, but, but this is one of the places that, that a lot of people find a conflict between science and the Bible, because science, popular science, naturalistic science, says that the earth is very old and that things got here by evolution, whereas a lot of in, in Christians' interpretations of the Bible says the earth really isn't more than a few thousand years old, and evolution isn't true. Let me point out a few things that we just should keep in mind when we're thinking about Genesis 1 and 2. We can't go into this in a lot of depth, but a couple things. One thing is that about 400 years ago, there was a bishop 
uh, church bishop in Europe who proposed that the earth was created in 4004 B.C. And this is really the foundation for a lot of people who think, you know what, the Bible is really young. Because he added together the genealogies in the Bible and came up with this calculation saying 4004 B.C. was the start date for the earth. But since then, even Bible, pretty much all Bible scholars agree that 4004 wasn't the beginning of the earth because James Usher didn't take into account the fact that these genealogies, genealogies in Scripture sometimes skip generations. So the start was definitely before 4004, but we still don't know exactly when it was. One of the other, other things we have to recognize about Genesis 1 and 2 is that these chapters are very difficult to interpret. There are a lot of challenges there uh, regarding, okay, what's the length of a day back then um, and, and how it's interpreted? How do we interpret the literary quality of Genesis 1? It's not easy. And there's, there are a lot of different ideas out there on interpretations of this passage. One of the other things we have to keep in mind, though, is that science can provide an explanation for what's called a young earth. Young earth being an earth that's probably 10 to 20,000 years old. Um, naturalistic science says, no, there's no way that science can prove a young earth. But I would beg to differ. It all depends on your interpretation of the data. Right now, I'd like to show just a brief video uh, from a ministry called Answers in Genesis, uh, which is talking about just a little snippet of potential scientific evidence for the earth not being billions of years old, but instead being only 10 to 20,000 years old. Rock layers are visible in mountains, plateaus, and canyons all over the world. Where did these rock layers come from? Present processes aren't the answer. Today, sand and mud are usually deposited in thin layers along the outer edge of continents. And the formation of fossils today is rare. But somehow in the past, thick layers of sand and mud were spread across entire continents and filled with well-preserved fossils. Noah's flood suggests a way to explain these puzzling features. Flooding the continents, for example, could carry sea creatures many hundreds of feet above present sea level. Andrew Snelling is a PhD geologist from Australia who has spent over 30 years studying rocks, working in the field, and in the lab. We find marine creatures buried at the top of the Grand Canyon, which is over a mile above sea level. A global flood could carry sand and mud enormous distances. Some of the sand grains that are in the Navajo sandstone have to come from the Appalachians. But what river or what process today is carrying material from the Appalachians to the, the southwest? A global flood could quickly lay down thick layers of mud and sand, burying even giant animals and tall trees. We've got coal beds with trees sitting on them, and these trees, tree stumps, go through many strata, which means that before they could rot, you had to have lots of sand and mud coming in quickly. Several places in the Grand Canyon, 4,000 feet of different types of, of sand and mud and lime have been bent, and they've been, been bent while they're still soft. Both the bottom layer and the top layer are all bent the same way. 
which means that a whole sequence of 4,000 feet of, the, of sand and mud and lime had to have been laid down very quickly by the waters and then bent very soon afterwards. A global flood could form thick layers across entire continents. In the Grand Canyon area, we've got limestone beds, the Red Wall limestone. The same limestone can be found over here in the United, eastern United States. A global flood could cut deeply and widely. We've got this huge flat surface at the rim of the Grand Canyon, which goes for thousands of square miles, where waters on a great scale of a vast area just swept over it and swept everything clean. None of these processes, deep, wide erosion, or thick, rapid layering, or continent-wide distribution, or lifting of marine organisms above sea level, or sand carried across continents, occur in the present. Radically different processes are required, such as occurred during Noah's flood. So as you see, if, um, if the Earth really is just a few thousand years old rather than billions of years old, the processes that would take place would be different. And Noah's flood, found in the later chapters of Genesis, oh, is a good possibility for what could cause a lot of the geology and the other factors that we see in the Earth today. That many people, um, as they interpret that from a naturalistic perspective, they say, well, that points to the Earth being really, really old. But as we saw in that video... If there was a, a great worldwide flood, as the Bible talks about, that could give a lot of scientific uh, credence to God creating the world not that many thousands of years ago. Now, we still have this question um, that especially many children wonder about. Of, well, what about the dinosaurs? We're talking about science. Dinosaurs are scientific type things. What about the dinosaurs? Where do they fit in? Well, let me just say a couple quick words about that. If the earth, if your interpretation of the earth is that it's, say, millions or billions of years old, odds are good dinosaurs were around before humans um, died off before then. But the bigger challenge for Christians is if they believe that the earth is just, say, 10,000 years old, where'd dinosaurs fit in then? Well, then, if dinosaurs really lived, which I believe they did, then dinosaurs and humans would have been alive at the same time for a while until probably sometime around the time of Noah's flood. Uh, but we, we don't know for sure, but, but I think there is a lot of scientific evidence that points towards the existence of God and points to the fact that, you know what, when we truly understand science, it's going to show that it complements Scripture. Now, the final thing I want to point to quickly this morning is just that naturalistic evolution doesn't work. This is the idea that things evolved on their own through time and chance to create everything that we have today. It simply doesn't work. One of the reasons I say this is look at the origin of life. Not just the origin of the universe, but the origin of life, like the first creature here on this earth. Where did it come from? Even these scientists like Richard Dawkins, who are strong supporters of evolution, they have no idea where that first life came from. There are quite a few sincere, serious scientists who are seriously speculating that, that life was deposited here on earth by aliens. Now, you may think that sounds strange. I do too. But there are serious scientists who believe that, who are these naturalistic scientists who believe in evolution, and it shows how hard it is for them to explain 
the origin of life when they have to resort to explanations such as aliens. But I'm serious in that. And it shows that the origin of life is very hard to explain. Scientifically, there's not a good way to explain it. And so that, again, points to a God who got things going. Also, the fossil record doesn't support naturalistic evolution. If you have natural, naturalistic evolution, you're going to have a process of things going from a less complex to more complex. And you'll have what are called transitional fossils as species morph into new species. But we don't have any evidence of transitional fossils. Darwin recognized that's one of the weaknesses of his theory. And today, 150 years after Darwin, we still don't have any more fossil evidence for evolution. And finally, we just basically have no evidence for macroevolution. Macroevolution is evolution from one species to another. There's no evidence for it at all. Basically, evolution is just a theory that has been, um, been put forth to try to explain the world in natural terms when, when people give up belief in God. And so, in conclusion, as I've been saying throughout here, I believe that the Bible is true. And that true science will complement what is in Scripture. We may have to keep searching to understand, okay, what does science truly say here? That will encourage us when we hear accounts of, oh, science disproves the Bible over here or over here, to look at, okay, what's the science? What What are the philosophies that are shaping people's interpretations of their observation of the data of nature? And how does that align with Scripture? In closing, I want to read just one verse out of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 where the writer says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what was seen was not made out of what was visible. It takes faith to believe in God. Also, for those who don't want to believe in God, it takes great faith to be an atheist as well. I think it takes less faith, though, to believe that there is a God who designed this universe. And when we look at the world around us, I fully believe that we are going to see ample evidence for the existence of God. Let's pray. Our Lord, we give you thanks that that you created us, that we may know you. But God, also thank you that you gave us evidence of your existence and evidence of how you want us to live in Scripture, but also in the world around us. And Lord, as we encounter difficult arguments out there against your existence, people who say that that science disproves the Bible, God, I pray that you'll give us wisdom and discernment on how to respond to those people. And even for us, Lord, who have questions in our own minds, please guide us as we continue to seek answers and give us faith, Lord, to trust you at all times. In Jesus' name, amen.